Well, good morning. Uh, once again, it's just a, a blessing uh, to be with you and to open up the Word of God and, and also just to, to join together and singing collectively. It's a, it's a blessing to my soul. Um, this morning, we're going to be in, in Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, if you've been journeying with us, you know that's where we're, we're camping out and, and looking at. And, um, you know, I think God has some things for us this morning. If you've had the opportunity before to, to look at Nehemiah 7 or if you just start to uh, glance down, uh, you can pick up very quickly that about 90% of this chapter is names, uh, which is always interesting when you're hitting those parts of your Bible reading of what to do with all of those names. And so I felt like that a bit this week as I was um, uh, reading Nehemiah 7 and kind of meditating on what was happening and trying to uh, figure out where God wanted us to go this morning. And so I do believe the names are important. They're not going to really be the, the focus of what we talk about. And so um, as we've been unpacking the book of Nehemiah and digging into it, we, we've said it over and over again, but it's worth repeating um, that al although your perception might have been early on that uh, this book was about them building the wall, that the wall is not really the point of the book. Um, and so uh, that should be really evident because last week as we finished up Nehemiah 6, the wall gets finished. So the wall is completed at this point, but we still have all the way to Nehemiah 13. And so if the wall was the point, um, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, but the wall is not the point. And so really what we see within the scriptures and what is evident and true is that God is much more concerned with the hearts of his people than what is going on externally in the nation of Israel. And so the wall serves a purpose and it is something that has brought out a lot within the hearts of the people, but the wall is not the point. And so now that we are about halfway through the book and the wall is done, um, I think the point is going to be start becoming more and more evident, although we have talked about it, it's gonna become abundantly clear in these next couple of chapters of what God is driving at with his people. And so as I have read Nehemiah 7 and just kind of meditated on it this week, what I really see it about in really these next couple of chapters and what God is doing through this prophet Nehemiah in the people of Israel at this time, it's really about worship. And that shouldn't surprise us when we're in church. It's kind of one of those basic answers that if you're ever asked a question in Sunday school or in church, you can kind of go with a couple of different answers. You know, Jesus, uh, worship is also a good one in there if Jesus wasn't that specific answer at that point. Uh, and so uh, it shouldn't surprise us, but it is something we have to come back to over and over and over and over again that the point of what God is drawing all of us to is worship. And so chapter seven is very much about the preparation to worship. And so chapter eight, what we're gonna talk about next week is when they really begin to enter into this place of corporate worship with the wall having been restored in Jerusalem and the people returning home from their exile, what's going to happen? They're gonna worship the Lord. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so uh, a, a quote that has just really uh, stuck with me for a long time uh, about worship and about the church and about the people of God is one by Pastor John Piper in a book about missions. And so uh, one of my roles here at the church is helping mission trip happens. Uh, that's something God's just put on my heart. I love to go overseas. I love to uh, be a part of the proclamation of the gospel. But uh, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, Pastor John Piper makes this really profound statement. Um, he says that missions is not the number one goal of the church. Worship is. And then I love this statement. He says, missions exists because the worship of God does not. And so the supreme act of the universe for creation, for us as people, is the worship of 
God. And so within that, we can see that there are some things we're supposed to step into, like the people of God being called to repair the walls of Jerusalem and fight against injustice and come together as a people. There is a mission, but that mission is existing because the worship of God is not existing. And so worship is ultimate because God is ultimate. Missions is not ultimate. It is a means to an end, and that end is worship. And so I, I love, and I want us to look real quick before we actually jump into Nehemiah 7. If you would, go to John chapter 4. And I think it's important for us this morning. And it's a story that gets uh, read a lot in church. It's the story of the woman at the well that encounters Jesus. And so we usually think about this passage in different ways, but uh, Jesus makes this really profound statement about what God is doing in the world. And I think it's important for us this morning. And so uh, in verse 21 of John chapter 4, Jesus says this, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I love that statement that Jesus makes, that the Father is seeking those who would worship him. And so um, kind of within that Old Testament setting, and we're getting a lot of it in Nehemiah and with the people of Israel, you know the importance of the temple for the people of Israel. And so um, created under Solomon, uh, built up together as kind of the culmination of the nation aspect of Israel. And they had been, um, you know, housing uh, um, their worship within a tent, but then they finally made this physical temple. And it was, you know, the pinnacle of Jerusalem. And you can read all this uh, incredible description of how it get built, and that was the center of their worship. But then it gets destroyed, and that's when that captivity happens and why so many people are scattered outside of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah is because they got decimated by a foreign army, and that temple gets destroyed. And so the people coming back want to recreate that aspect of the worship of their God because that's where they went to worship. And so uh, the temple does eventually get rebuilt, and then we also see in the time of Jesus that there is a temple in Jerusalem, but then that temple also gets destroyed. And so I know for us sitting in 2022, you know, we take in the New Testament with the teachings of the Bible. And so one of the things we know from the teachings of the New Testament is that now we are considered the temple of God. So you've probably even heard the phrase, uh, your body is a temple. A lot of times we talk about that in taking care of our physical health, which I am not against. But the reality of the scriptures is that our body is a temple because when we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. And what was the purpose of the temple? That was where worship was supposed to take place. That's where you went and met with God and worshiped God. So I love that Jesus makes this clear that the Father, the God of the universe, is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what's going on in Nehemiah right now. And so if you read the narrative of Scripture from the beginning, from the fall of humanity, what God is continually doing is he's creating a people for himself. And so you even see this phrase repeated a lot in the Old Testament in the story of Israel when they have strayed and God is doing a redemptive work to bring them back. You see it repeated a lot. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And so the point of this book and the point of all of our lives is to engage in this supreme act that God has given his creation in entering in together to worship. And that is not a singular act. It is a collective act. And so that's what's so important about the nation aspect of Israel is that God was creating this people for himself, that he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. And now that offer is extended to us and to the whole world that, that for anybody who places their faith in Jesus, they get to collectively engage in what is the most important act of the universe, the worship of the one true God. And so what we see going on right here is that the preparation for this act is beginning, that they have completed this wall that was a provision from the Lord for the people, but not the point of their existence. And now they are beginning to enter back into the rhythms and the life of what God would call them to. So if you would, let's, let's look at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, and just to lay my cards on the table, I'm not going to read all the names. You know, I don't think any of us want to hear that. Uh, but I would encourage you to. I, I believe every part of Scripture is important. Uh, but I think if, you know, if I just time myself, we'd spend about 25 minutes of me trying to pronounce things. Uh, So we're going to move on from there. So Nehemiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1, says this. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. And that's where he begins to list the different families returning to Jerusalem. And so we're, we're going to pause there for a little bit because I, I think it is very clear um, that there's beginning to be this transition from the wall being built, the city kind of being reestablished. And so now, like I said, we're going to start getting to the point of what this book is about. And so one of the first things I notice um, in, in verse one is that there begins to be this move towards ordered worship within the people of God. And so there's some appointees that are noted. And so he talks about gatekeepers, but then he says the singers and the Levites. And so there's a lot of different positions, I think, within the city life that could be talked about and could be important, but very quickly from, okay, gates get built, we need somebody to watch the gates. The next two most important functions within our people is the worship of God. And so they appoint the Levites, those were the priests. So as they were moving back into the city and the people are gathering together, they need uh, the pastors and the worship leaders, essentially. So he says the Levites and the singers, because they are getting ready to worship their God, what they had been missing for so many years as they had been spread out and exiled. And so really you could see that now that the wall has gotten rebuilt, in a lot of ways to me, it feels like the real work is about to begin with these people. They are preparing to worship. That wall was a provision. It was a means and not an end. But then we get into the list of people and it is a lot in there. There's a lot of different names and numbers. And, you know, for me, as I um, 
as I reflect on those passages of scripture, because there are a lot of places in the Bible that it gives these lists of names, uh, uh, Pastor Charlie really brought it home for me back in chapter three when we were reading through lists. And he said this, he said, um, it's not a list, it's the church. And that really gave a lot of context for me because I've read through those genealogies before and kind of thought, what was the point? Um, but if you think about the fact how God has always, from the beginning, been creating a people for himself and we get to be a part of that people, it kind of makes sense that he keeps track of his family. And that's an incredible aspect of the nation of Israel that they do keep track of their family and they want to know because they have been spread out all over the world and been taken into captivity, taken into exile. And so as the people of God are returning, we do get kind of an account of who's in there. And so, you know, even as a church today, we keep church roles, um, kind of an older idea, but you know, we've got a list of all the people that have belonged to Park Springs Bible Church. We have a list of our membership because we're family and families keep a record of their family. And so that's one of the aspects we see within the scriptures is that God is creating this people for himself. And so we're going to get into it more next week. But if you want to just kind of figure out what Nehemiah chapter 7 is about, Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 kind of surmises all of Nehemiah 7. And this is what it says in Nehemiah 8.1. It says, all the people gathered as one man. I'm just going to stop there. All the people gathered as one man. God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And he is calling the people of God back together to order their lives around the worship of the one true God. And we can see that beginning to take place. And so I love that idea that God um, is, is building his people. He's bringing us together. And once again, you know, I, I love connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament because we're still living a continuation of the unfolding of God's history. And so I love that this idea is present even within the New Testament. And so if you would, Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it gives us this, um, this building metaphor. And so if you think about the fact that, uh, you know, we've kind of been talking about being built to last, what's really being built to last is the people of God in the worship of God. So I love that Ephesians 2, uh, it talks about this in verse 18. It says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Worship is the point. What is God building to last? He is building those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. It's an incredible uh, visual that we have on how God is assembling his people for himself so that we would worship him, which should bring us to the question of what worship actually is. And we probably all have context for that word. You know, it's, it's so easy to reduce it to what happens before the sermon on Sunday mornings. But we, we know um, if we were given, you know, our churchy answers that worship isn't just singing, it's just an aspect of that. So, so what is worship at its root? And so what I would say it is, is valuing what is most valuable. 
And so that's why singing plays this such an important role, even, even biblically, you know, as, as Amanda talked about, that they put the singers at the front because there's something about poetry and music that kind of stirs us in a different ways and it helps us and reminds us to make what is most valuable of highest importance in our life. And so if we want to worship God, we are going to value what is most valuable and what is most valuable is Him. And so we, we see that in the people of Israel, what happens so often is that the entirety of their uh, society and civil structure was centered around the worship of the one true God. And we get all the ceremonial aspects of that, of what it took to go into the temple and how God was establishing this idea of holiness so that we would understand him in a deeper way. We see that their whole life revolved around this idea of worship. And, I, you know, some, for me, I, I feel like we miss some of those things uh, because, you know, we're, we're not uh, Old Testament Jewish people. There's a lot of the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament that we don't hold to because of Jesus Christ and his finished work. But I, I think that aspect of having your whole life revolve around joining together with others in the temple was important because so often we begin to value things that are lesser than God himself. And so if, if the point of the book of Nehemiah is this idea of worship, and if we need to prepare ourselves for worship, we need to reevaluate what's going on in our lives today and ask ourselves, are we valuing what is most valuable? And I love that that's how the New Testament talks about the gospel. And so Jesus gives these parables for what the kingdom of God is like in Matthew 13. And I love the one, it has two right in a, uh, in a row. It says that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he sells everything else he has and he buys the field. And then it says the, the kingdom of God is like a pearl of greatest value. That when a man found it, he sold everything else and he took what was most valuable. And that's what worship is in our hearts is when we value what is of supreme value, God himself. And so even for us today, I, I love that idea in that parable. It says like when the man found the treasure, he sold everything else like all of the other things. And there are other things that are valuable, but they aren't of greatest value. He sold everything else and he chose what was of best value, of greatest value. And I think for us, that's going to be important. And we even see uh, within the text, uh, people are going to begin to be distracted already. Like life gets a little bit easier. There's not the people trying to kill them. The wall is rebuilt. And very quickly on, people begin to turn from the worship of God and they begin to be concerned with other things. And so we need to ask ourselves today, like is our life centered around valuing what is most valuable as the point of our lives, the worship of the one true God in the way that the Bible calls us to. Um, I do want to look at, at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7 because I think it has some other important things for us. So if you would look all the way down um, to verse 70. So he gets through all the lists, the counting of the different families that have come back from the exile that are gathering together in Jerusalem. And then uh, verse 70 says this, now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, fifty basins, thirty priests' garments, and five hundred minus of silver. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work twenty thousand derricks of gold, two thousand two hundred minus of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was twenty thousand derricks of gold, two thousand minus of silver, and sixty-seven priests' garments. So the priest 
the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month, seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And so that's how the chapter kind of wraps up, that there is this record and recording of all the people that have returned. And then some, I, I think it's really important that what verse 70 says, and then also uh, verse 71. It says, some of the heads of fathers' houses. It repeats that in both 70 and 71, that some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave towards the work of the temple. And I want to point out two things. Even, even going back to the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, uh, uh, it talks about that Nehemiah set someone over the people. He set a governor of Jerusalem. He says he set his brother. And I like what it says about him. It says, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And then I, I want to connect this to what's happening with the heads of the father's houses. Uh, all of us are interconnected in different ways and have different roles that we're supposed to fulfill in this life. And a lot of of us have positions of leadership either within uh, our community of faith or within our own families. All of us have influence, all of us have leadership, and God has called us to utilize those in different ways. And not everybody does do that to influence people to worship the one true God. And so an aspect of the people of God being built together to worship is that it requires both the leaders God establishes and the heads of households and families to um, position the people to do that correctly. And I think that's really important. So I love that when Nehemiah is helping establish a, a positional um, authority of leadership, this governor of Jerusalem, it says he picks a man who was more God-fearing than many. Now, there's a lot of reasons people get placed into leadership, and there could be a lot of reasons uh, given for Hanani and Hananiah to be placed in this position. You know, if you just think about the situation they are in, it could have been a, a lot of different reasons needed for who's going to run Jerusalem. It could be somebody who is the best at military tactics. It could have been someone who is the best architect because they are still um, doing this rebuilding project. Like who has the most experience as a city planner or who has the most experience as a fundraiser? You know, there could be a lot of reasons to put somebody into leadership over the people of God. But what he says about this person specifically is that he was more God-fearing than most. And so that position of leadership, and all of us have people that in some ways lead us, even if we're very much individualistic, we're all placed under authority in different levels, but who's in that position over us is extraordinarily important. And God has designed that for a reason, because we are people that are supposed to follow, even temporal earthly leadership we're supposed to follow because it's supposed to point us towards God. And so who is in positions of leadership over the people of God is very important. And let me just say, you know, I, I always like to take the opportunity when he he's not here to talk about how much I admire and respect Charlie. You know, um, and if you know Charlie, you know that his love language is sarcasm. And so I couldn't really tell them, him this directly to his face. Um, but ha now having been able to work with and under Charlie for, for around seven years, what, what I can say is um, the, the most powerful gifting Charlie has is his humility. And Charlie loves Jesus and he loves this church. And so uh, you could probably look around at church world and, and find people with a, a different level of talent or ability in different ways. Um, but I am just very grateful that God has placed a leader for our church who is more God-fearing than many.
And so um, just as you pray for the team in Guatemala this week, make sure you, you, you pray for your pastor and just lift him up to the Lord and, and, and thank God that we have a, a humble leader who wants us to know and follow Jesus. It's very important. But then also, God puts this special emphasis on family. And so it says, some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work, which means some did not. And that's significant, if you think about it. Um, You know, one of the things we would say in regards to to giving to church and giving to the work of the Lord is that it is an act of worship. And so if we go back to our definition of valuing what is most valuable, one of the ways that is revealed in our lives is how we utilize our finances and if we are obedient to the Lord on that behalf. And so it is much less about um, um, a monetary gift and much more about the state and what it reveals of the heart of the giver. And so um, I think it's important that it does say some gave to the work of the Lord because it means some did not. And so it made me just kind of reflect on um, the, the passage in Joshua. And I, I want to flip over there. Go to Joshua 24. I think it's good to have all these reminders in front of us. So near the end of, of Joshua's uh, leadership of the people of Israel, when they have moved into the promised land, the people of Israel get this moment where God kind of sets before them a choice. And so Joshua, as his leadership is coming to an end, and the people have gotten into the promised land, so they have gotten the promise, and now it's going to be contingent on them if they want to continue to honor the promise giver. So Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15 says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." You know, if you're a good Christian, you probably have that on um, a plaque or something somewhere in your home. But it is this really powerful reminder that all of us have this choice we get to make in our own lives on who we're going to serve or ultimately what we're going to worship, what we are going to consider most valuable and what we're going to aim our lives at. And so I love how clear Joshua made that for the people. He's like, you're going to serve something. So you're going to choose either serve those other gods that some of your fathers went after, serve the gods that the people around you are serving, but choose this day whom you're going to serve. What are you going to value most? What are you going to build your life upon? And Joshua makes the statement for himself, for me and my house, because he's the leader of his house. He is a man of influence. He has been given positional authority by God to help direct the others around him. And he makes a decision that for him and his household, they are going to serve the Lord. And for all of us in those positions in our families, we have to make that decision as well. What are we going to value the most? How are we going to make a decision to prioritize worship in the life of ourselves and in the life of our families? Um, my first seven years in ministry was just doing youth ministry, student ministry, um, which is pretty common as, as people move into ministry. It's like, okay, you want to try out what it's like to be a pastor here, go with the teenagers. Um, always a great idea. 
But one of the, the inevitable uh, things you run into youth ministry, and it's not unique to me, if you talk to any youth pastor, they will ha- uh, have similar stories uh, that inevitably uh, you might end up running into some conflict with uh, your youth ministry priorities and the priorities of parents and their teenagers that play high school sports. And this is a reality, and it's something, you know, I definitely navigated at different times because uh, you might have uh, certain families or certain individuals that for large portions of the year, um, they just disappear. And, and so you, you end up having conversations like, hey, haven't seen you in a while, how's everything going? And it's like, well, it's like soccer season, or hey, it's volleyball season, or whatever it might be. And you try to t- kind of tiptoe into these waters of, you think that's the best idea if you miss, you know, uh, 34 Sundays out of the year for your children's sports, and then they get mad and never come back. And, you know, it's this whole thing that youth pastors youth pastors do. And, and so I, I feel a bit more freedom that I'm not the one actively engaging in the youth ministry these days. But one of the things that just always um, burdened my heart as a youth pastor, and I, and I wanted to say, but always just kind of felt a check of, this is just not going to go well um, coming from you know a 22-year-old. But one of the things I have seen happen over and over and over again in the lives of families is that um, uh, parents indulged hobbies to such a level, and then when that child got out of high school and then went off to college, they completely abandoned the faith, and then the parent was left asking, like, why has my kid left the faith? And for me, I wanted to tell them it's because you taught them over and over and over again that their hobby was more important than worshiping God. And, and I'm not saying that from a position of judgment. I'm saying it from a position of heartbreak because I, I, I loved those kids and I loved those families and I wanted to uh, sometimes be confrontive with those parents and be like, look, soccer is not more important than you being at church on Sunday. Volleyball is not more important than you being at church on Sunday. And let me just tell you, like, missing a Sunday is not a huge deal to me. There is time with family. There's vacations. Those are all important aspects of your family life. But if consistently, you heads of households, if you establish that your children's hobbies are more important than the worship of God, you're not following biblically what God has commanded us as families to do. You are not valuing what is most valuable and you're doing a disservice to your children to teach them that their hobbies are more important than worshiping God. We have so much in this day and age that competes for our priorities. There is always going to be different things you can do on a Sunday morning, different things that are gonna pull for your attention. And so what is such a good reminder for me this morning as I think about how this nation of Israel is getting ready to worship God is that passage in John 4 where Jesus says so clearly that God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And I just wonder if we are going to be those people, even in this day and age, that are going to center our lives around the worship of God, if we are going to value what is of most value, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. With our time, are we going to seek the Lord? With our finances, are we going to seek the Lord? With our talents and abilities, are we going to seek the Lord? With our lives, will we serve the Lord? The Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Are we going to center our lives on what is most valuable or on things that are temporal? And one of the ways we can just evaluate for ourselves on where our priorities might lie is to kind of just ask ourselves the question like, if this conflicts with me worshiping God, how hard is it to give that thing up, whatever it might be? If we would have difficulty giving something up so that we can join together and worship God, it might reveal in our own lives that our priorities are not in the places they should be, and it should cause us to uh, seek the Lord on how we might need to make adjustments in our own personal lives, but also on behalf of the families we are a part of, maybe on behalf of the church that we are a part of, there might be this space for repentance in our own lives. And that's getting into chapter 8, because the first call when they begin to worship together as the people of God is a call to confession and repentance. And so I'm going to just wrap up there and just offer that reminder that God is building a people for himself, a people that is going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And all of us will worship something. All of us will place something in that spot of what we value the most. And my uh, just heartfelt plea would be value what is most valuable something that cannot be taken away, something that is not seasonal, something that is eternal, and that is the worship of the one true God in spirit and in truth. Would you pray with me?